Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Izzy. I'm one of the deacons here at CBC. Uh, and it's an honor and privilege to bring the word of God to you this morning. Um, this summer, we've been uh, preaching on passages from the Gospels in a sermon series called uh, Encountering Jesus. And we're looking at stories of how meeting Jesus changes people. Jesus heals the sick, and he feeds the hungry. He preaches the good news of God's kingdom, and he gives hope to everyone he meets. During these past Sundays, I hope that we've been all asking ourselves, if meeting Jesus changed them, what does it mean for me? Do I believe Jesus is who he said he was? How should meeting Jesus change me? In today's passage, we're going to look at the story of the rich young ruler. Uh, it's a story found in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, but unlike the other stories that Milt and Mike have preached this summer, this story is about someone who encountered Jesus and then decided not to follow him. You might ask, why wouldn't someone follow Jesus? Well, it has a lot to do with the difference between someone who is just a convert and someone who is a disciple. Only someone who is a disciple will follow Jesus. So let's read through the passage in Luke together, keeping in mind that we will also reference other versions of the same story in the other Gospels in Matthew 19 and Mark 10. But for today, we'll stick with Luke 18, uh, verses 18 through 30. All right, so that passage says this, starting with verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Verse 24. Jesus, seeing that he become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. In verse 18, Luke describes a ruler coming to Jesus with a question. Who is this person? So the Greek word used for this here for ruler describes someone who is a synagogue administrator. Uh, in Jewish communities of the time, particular men would be asked to become rulers of the synagogue. Uh, they were responsible for the administration, the maintenance, and the order of the local synagogue. Uh, these were often men of wealth and social standing, and they exercised authority over the synagogue assembly. So they weren't rabbis or religious teachers. They were lay leaders in their community. So this ruler, Matthew notes that this ruler was a young man. So this ruler comes up to Jesus and asks, 
good teacher, what thing must I do so that I will inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus already knows the heart of this young man from where this question comes. Every human heart knows that it falls short. And every human heart wants to know that it is good enough. Ultimately, every human heart wants acceptance. But where can acceptance come from to satisfy this longing? So in verse 19, Jesus responds with a question to his question. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You see, the young man came to Jesus thinking he was going to get some spiritual advice to make his life more holy. He knows he needs eternal life, and he wants to make sure that he gains it. So he wants Jesus to give him a checklist so that he will know that he has got everything covered. But Jesus see through, sees through this young man's question at once. The question itself betrays the true state of this young man's heart. The young ruler wants to ask one question, but the way he asks the question reveals his question is actually about something else. He wants to ask a question about how to get eternal life, but really his question is about God. So Jesus does a merciful thing and confronts him. In essence, Jesus is saying to this young man, do you know who you're talking to? Because Jesus wants him to know that only God is good. And if the young man recognizes that Jesus is good, then he must accept the possibility that he is talking to no mere man. Instead of just meeting a good teacher, he is in fact meeting God. By making this statement, the other thing Jesus wants the young man to know, that if God alone is good, then by definition, humans fall into the not good category. And that probably makes the young man a bit uncomfortable because he had been counting upon doing good things to make himself a good person, to be good enough for eternal life. His wealth and his social status in that community defined him as the quintessential good person. But now Jesus is raising the question, if God alone is good, can humans ever be good enough? So here's the first point. Do we know who we're talking to? When we encounter Jesus, we're encountering a holy God. He's not a religious teacher. He's not a guru. He's not a spiritual advisor. He is God in the flesh. Our first reaction to encountering Jesus should not be to ask for advice. Our first reaction to encountering Jesus should be to worship him. I want you to hang on to this thought because this point has an important bearing on our prayer life, which we'll talk about at the end. So now, back to the rich young ruler, back to the passage. In verse 20, Jesus asked the young man, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. The ruler's response in verse 21 is that he has done all these things since his youth. But again, this answer betrays his own heart. He's not just stating his opinion here. What he's actually stating is he's good enough to earn eternal life. 
In Matthew's account, he says to Jesus, all of these things I have kept, what still do I lack? He's saying, not only have I obeyed everything God commanded, but I couldn't possibly be lacking anything else. Right, Jesus? Wow, Jesus has an answer for that. Look at verse 22. It says, upon hearing this, Jesus says to him, one more thing you still lack. All that you have, sell and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. In verse 23, the young ruler heard these things, and he became sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus commands the young ruler to sell his possessions, to give his money to the poor, and to come follow him. The Greek word used here for follow is akolutheo, which is a combination of the Greek words together and road. The idea is that if you're going to follow someone, you're going to go with them on the road they are going. Jesus wants the young man to leave his wealth behind, to do good in this world, to have treasure in heaven, and to go with Jesus on the road that he's going. Now we get to the crux of the matter. There is no chance of the young ruler, the young man, evading what Jesus is revealing about his heart. It's almost like Jesus is excavating, digging deep into this young man's heart to reveal what is at the core of this young man's question. Jesus is asking him, who or what do you love the most? He isn't giving this young man a choice of keeping his wealth and becoming Jesus' disciple because Jesus knows as long as the young man is rich, he will never become a disciple because riches are his first love. The thing that Jesus says he lacks is actually not a small thing at all. And Luke writes that this young man was not only rich, but extremely rich. There's a special Greek word he used for extremely. He's extremely rich. He's like Jeff Bezos rich, right? And Matthew writes that he went away sad. He could not follow Jesus. He loved his wealth the most. So here's a question to ask ourselves here. Is there anything that if Jesus asked us to give up, we would turn our backs on him? For the rich young ruler, it was his wealth. But for us, it might be something different. Is there something that we're holding on to that is preventing us from following Jesus? Now, Jesus is not saying that we are saved by the things that we do. It is very clear that the Bible teaches we are saved by faith. But if we believe Jesus is the Son of God, and if we are his followers, then it is clear that the followers of Jesus obey Jesus and follow him no matter what. The evangelical church in our country faces a crisis. Christians in America want to be Christians as long as that means they can maintain their lifestyle, hold on to their social status, keep the respect of non-believers, and gain the acceptance of the society around them. But Jesus here is saying that to be his disciple, we have to obey him, and that obedience may cost us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor in pre-World War II Germany, 
And he used the story of the rich young ruler in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. In Bonhoeffer's time, every German considered themselves Christian because the culture was Christian. Many Germans were baptized, received communion, and considered themselves Christian even if they didn't go to church regularly, even if they didn't believe Jesus was God, even if they never opened their Bibles. To Bonhoeffer, this kind of Christianity wasn't real. He called it cheap grace. He wrote in this book, Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. So here's the second point. Jesus calls disciples, not just converts. Do you know what a convert is? It's someone who's changed their beliefs. The rich young ruler wanted to be someone who acknowledges Jesus, someone who respects Jesus, but he didn't want to be a disciple of Jesus. He wanted to go his own way to live his own life. He didn't want to follow the path that Jesus was setting out for him. Now contrast this with Zacchaeus in the sycamore tree from the sermon that Milt preached last Sunday. Zacchaeus was a tax collector and a traitor to Rome's people. But when he met Jesus, he was determined to forsake his former life and to right every wrong that he had done. Now there's a reason why Luke puts these stories next to each other in his gospel. To be a disciple of Jesus, we may have to give up the thing we love most, whatever it might be, and in doing so, put God on the rightful place of the throne of our hearts. Not only must God come first, but when God calls us to obey him, we must lay down whatever he asks us to lay down and come and follow him. Back to the passage in verse 24. We see Jesus' reaction to the rich young ruler deciding not to follow Jesus. Upon seeing his sadness, Jesus says, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. First, when Jesus says the kingdom of God, what does he mean? It means a place where God, as the rightful king, reigns over God's people. And then in verse 25, Jesus goes further and makes an astonishing claim. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a wealthy man to enter this kingdom. Now, if you've grown up in Sunday school like I have, you've all heard this story before maybe, and it's very familiar to you, and you may have been taught that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle, and that it was difficult for a camel to get through the gate unless it was unloaded first. You may have been taught this to illustrate that Jesus taught it is very difficult, if not impossible, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm sorry to tell you this, but this interpretation has no basis. Scripture never uses the word gate in this passage. And archaeologists have never ever found a gate 
called the eye of the needle. When Jesus uses this illustration, he's actually using humor to make his point. Imagine a whole camel trying to fit through the eye of a needle. But since we don't meet camels frequently in Northern Virginia, Jesus might have a different illustration for us, right? He might say, like a tractor trailer driving into your garage, right? It's not going to fit. He might say, a senior citizen using TikTok. That's impossible, right? (laughs) Right? Or he might say, Mark Zuckerberg beating Elon Musk in a cage fight. All right. That hasn't happened yet, so maybe that's not a good illustration. All right. What Jesus is saying is that it is impossible. And look at verse 26. Upon hearing Jesus, people around him ask, well, who then can be saved? They're asking this because in Jesus' time, wealth was regarded as a sign of God's reward for living a good life. If you were wealthy, like the rich young ruler, people assumed it came from being a good person. And so this question is being asked with this assumption in mind. If good people, i.e. wealthy people, if good people can't enter the kingdom of God, then who can? And Jesus' answer in verse 27 is that what is impossible with man is possible with God. No one can save themselves. It is impossible. But with God, everything becomes possible. The lame walk, the blind see, sinners repent, and God's forgiveness abounds. Peter reminds Jesus that the disciples have left their homes to follow him. And so in verse 29, Jesus replies that those who have left homes and possessions, family, to follow him for the kingdom will receive many times as much, not only in this life, and in the life to come, eternal life. Jesus is not preaching the prosperity gospel here. He notes specifically the things that his disciples might have to give up. But as for the things his disciples will receive in this life, he uses a Greek word that just means many times as much, or manifold, or a great deal. The reason why is that what God gives Jesus' disciples is not only the things listed, but much, much more. I want you to think. I want you to think about God's love for you manifested in so many different ways in your life. That love, higher than the heavens, deeper than the deepest ocean, wider than the skies, if you're a follower of Jesus, that is the kind of love that surrounds you from beginning to end. That kind of love will never let you go. Think about God walking with you through this life. The sense of his divine mercy and providence over your life. His guiding hand over the things that you do and the things that happen to you. Even when we suffer loss, and in this life, we will suffer loss like everyone else. We have this confidence, this peace, this assurance inside of us. This sense, which is the Holy Spirit living and active inside of us, is not something we would have if we didn't follow Jesus. And the freedom that is found in Jesus is priceless. You know, there's so many things in life that can enslave us and take away our freedom. One of them is money 
and our possessions. Which is why Jesus warns us about the love of money and wealth more than any other thing in the Gospels. This is because, as Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus wants to free us from the love of money, which is why in Mark's gospel of this story, chapter 10, verse 21, before Jesus tells the rich young ruler the one thing is lacking, it says that, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus wanted the rich young ruler to be free from his slavery to his wealth. And Jesus wants you and me to experience true freedom. So here's the third point. By following Jesus, we gain much, much more than anything this world has to offer us. No wealth, no riches, no fame can compare to the joy of knowing Christ Jesus and being loved by the greatest love this universe has ever known. If you're a follower of Jesus today, I want you to remember that you are destined for eternal life, for an eternity with God. And in this life, you have what Jesus said in this passage, many times as much as you had before you followed Jesus. And these things are worth more than any house, any car, any land, any bank account. The things that Jesus gives us are both eternal and priceless. Matthew ends this story in his gospel with Jesus saying this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 30. Jesus says this, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. There's lots of applications from this passage, and uh, I'm going to give you four of them. Um, the first one is, is asking and being asked. All right. You remember the first point in the sermon, which was, we need to know who we're talking to? This is really important, especially important when we pray. God is our Heavenly Father who wants to grant us all things good. And so when we approach him in prayer, we have questions like, God, will you please do this or that for me? Or why? Why, God, is this happening to me? Why is this happening to the ones I love? If you're praying intensely, sometimes you may feel that God is answering your question with a question, just like Jesus did with the rich young ruler. Why do you want this or that? For whom are you wanting this? Are you asking because you're afraid? What are you afraid of? And when God asks you a question, I don't want you to waste that moment. I want you to search deep within your own heart. And in that quiet searching, what you'll find is that by answering God honestly from the depths of your very soul, from your very being, God is using that moment to move you to a better understanding of him and a more honest realization of who you are and a deeper assurance of his purpose and love for you. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. So 
approach the throne of God boldly with your prayers and requests. He is our good father who wants to bless us. Even his questions, as uncomfortable as they are, may be a reflection of his great love for us. He's using our prayers not only to change our circumstances, but to change us as well. Second application, the danger of the love of money. When Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, I think most of us here breathe a sigh of relief. Oh, thank goodness, Jesus isn't talking to us. Let me provide a few facts that will make it clear that Jesus actually is probably talking to almost everyone in this room. According to the World Bank, 648 million people live on less than $2.15 a day. Most of these people live in India and Africa. Half of the world's population lives on less than $6.85 a day. Now, I'm not saying these things to make you feel guilty, but I want to remind all of us that compared to the rest of the world's 8 billion people, if anyone counts its rich, it's probably us. I would guess that we are living in the most prosperous, most comfortable, and most secure civilization in human history. There is a severe danger to all of us that the more comfortable and affluent we get, the more the love of money will capture our hearts. 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Jesus was incredibly concerned for the poor of his day. That's why he asked the rich young ruler to not only sell all that he had, but to give it up to those who were poor before following Jesus. One way to prevent the love of money from capturing your heart is to give it away. Jesus was concerned for the poor, and we should be too. That's why I'm super excited for our Close to You donation drive here next Saturday. Uh, it's a great opportunity to let go of our things so that others who need them more than we do can be blessed. Your donations, your volunteering, your prayers for this event reflect the kind of compassion that Jesus wants his disciples to have. I don't want anyone to misunderstand me here. Jesus did not advocate any governmental system resembling Marxism or communism or anything like that. Nor was Jesus asking every single one of his followers to become poor. What Jesus wanted for his followers was to not love money and to live lives of compassion and mercy. Like all things, if we love money, it will destroy us. We need to put wealth in its proper place. Uh, there's a pastor named Paul Tripp. He wrote a book called Redeeming Money, and he has a lot of things to say about the subject. In his book, he wrote this. Money can sit in our hearts as another evidence of the grace of God, grace so tender and faithful that we continue to experience blessings even on our worst day. Money is meant to function as an arrow pointing to the goodness and faithfulness of God. And even when money is lean, we are reminded of our dependence on someone bigger than us and how thankful we should be that we are not alone in lean circumstances. The question to ask ourselves is, how much does our love for Jesus shape our love for other things? If we love Jesus first and foremost, not only will we not love money, but our view of money will give us the freedom that God wants us to have. The gospel tells a better story. All of our lives are a story. 
and we all want our lives to tell the story we want to tell. But if you're a disciple of Jesus, you aren't in charge of your story anymore. God is the one who tells your story. And that's actually really good news. The gospel tells a better story than we ever could. The rich young ruler wanted to be his story to be one where he kept his wealth. But Jesus wanted the young man to experience real freedom and real joy. As John 10.10 says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What did the rich young ruler gain by not following Jesus? Well, he kept his wealth, but he died just like everyone else. And what happened to his wealth? Less than 40 years after the story, the city of Jerusalem was razed to the ground by Roman armies. 100 years after the story, in AD 132, Roman armies returned to Judea and destroyed every village, every Jewish village in Palestine, killing an estimated 600,000 Jewish people. It was a terrible tragedy. Nothing the rich young ruler owned survived any of these catastrophic events. And what became of the disciples who left everything to follow Jesus? They started a community of Christ followers that have spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. The stories of Jesus that Matthew, Mark, and Luke have written down, including the one that we're reading today, have been translated into 3,589 languages. There are 2.6 billion people today who identify as Christian in one way or another. The work of God in drawing people to himself. Who wouldn't want to be a part of it? Now, not everyone needs to be in vocational ministry, and I don't agree with the idea that only pastors and missionaries are doing God's work. If you are a follower of Jesus, your friendships, your work, your family life, everything is being used by God to bring others to a saving knowledge of Jesus and to bring glory to God. Whether you're a plumber or homemaker, lawyer or teacher, politician or physical therapist, if you submit your life to God, he will use it for his kingdom. The last point of application is, is Jesus costing me? Following Jesus can be costly. What we have read about Jesus and the rich young ruler makes it abundantly so. So let's ask ourselves today, is following Jesus costing me something? And another way to put this is, has being a follower of Jesus changed something in my life? If your answer is nothing, then I would challenge you today. Have you only changed your beliefs about Jesus? That would make you a convert. But if your beliefs are the only thing that has changed since you met Jesus, and the rest of your life is exactly the same, then I would encourage you to consider that Jesus is calling you to be a disciple. Matthew records in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 24-25, and Ivan read this during the pastoral prayer. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In conclusion, the world says that we must behave a certain way to be accepted. But the gospel says that we are accepted on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. 
which is why God, through his son Jesus, calls us to live different lives. It's not only that our beliefs are different than the world's, it's that our entire lives are lived differently. And that difference is the key to the contentment, the joy, and the peace that God provides only to those who follow him. Let's not be like the rich young ruler. Let's be like Zacchaeus, right? Let's be like the disciples. Let's be led by the love of God. Let's follow Jesus with eager anticipation and joy at what God will do. Amen. Let me close in prayer. Let's bow our heads together. Heavenly Father, giver of all good things, empower us to live lives of true discipleship, to to give you all of our lives, holding nothing back, laying down everything, so we can take up the cross and follow you. Heavenly Father, with, with our frailty, everything seems impossible. But we know with you, everything becomes possible. Heavenly Father, make all things possible. Make all things new. Bless us this week according to your goodness. Amen.